Good evening. Well, welcome to Warren Community Fellowship. So glad that each one of you are here this evening. Well, tonight we begin um, our study in the book of Colossians. And the first song that uh, we're going to be worshiping with tonight comes right there in the middle of Colossians chapter 1 where Paul tells us that Jesus reigns supreme. And so I invite you to stand as we worship our Lord and King this evening. Triumph for the brave 
God, we are here to worship you. You are the one that is our only source. And you reign and you rule in our lives this evening and in this place. And we thank you for all that you do and how faithful you always are. And every time we see you move on our behalf, how overwhelmed we are. Oh, 
experience the wrath of God through your death and through your resurrection, we could become part of your family. You are truly amazing. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians as we continue our journey through the Bible. Rachel had updated our projection of when we're going to finish our journey through the Bible, and and I've been doing it so fast, it's going to take us all the way into March of 2024. <laughs> but we're getting good stuff out of it. And, you know, I think that we started this well, back in like... 2015, I think it was. So we've, we've been at it for a while. My seven-year plan is not working out so good, though. But we're going to be in Colossians tonight as we take a look at this message. Um, before we get started, though, I, I, I would like to do a little intercessory prayer um, for one of the gals that attend our church for quite a while. She's a shut-in, but she's actually going in for surgery tomorrow. Can we pray for her? I think it would be good. Um, I, I prayed with her earlier today. Um, I don't have permission to, to share her name. Um, but the procedure is significant. Docs say that if they do this procedure, then she'll live. If they don't do this procedure, then she for sure will die. There's nothing else that they can do. It's a, it's a cardiac procedure. And um, she's got a good chance of not making it out of the procedure. So she's for sure going to go to heaven. And as I talked with her today, I said, you know, tomorrow you've got one of two options. You're going to get a miracle or you're going to get a miracle. So one of the miracles is that this procedure is going to work. And God's going to give you more days. The other miracle is that the procedure is not going to work and you're going to get a new body. And she goes, I'm okay with that. But... Still, I'd like to pray for her. So can we do that? So, God, I thank you that we can come before you in prayer and intercede on behalf of, of those that have failing health. And, and Lord, for this uh, sweetheart of a gal who's, who's just facing um, uh, a procedure tomorrow, putting her hands, her heart and her life in the hands of you um, as you guide the hands of the docs. Lord, I pray for peace, a restful night, and be with the family. Lord, I pray for the first miracle. We're confident if, the, if you don't give the first one, you'll give the second one. So, Lord, we trust in you for that outcome. And, Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would have a great testimony written and, and to be able to share about her. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Colossians, as Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, one of the challenges is the attack on the gospel. If I was to tell you what is the gospel, could you explain it? Could you tell me what the gospel is? We use the word gospel as saying good news, and that's fine. But what is the gospel? So if you have a pencil and a paper, I'm going I'm to help you to understand this. Years ago, we went on a, a mission, kind of a mission trip, a training, um, with Dare to Share. And Greg Steer had come up with this acronym for gospel. So G 
stands for God created us to be with Him. O, our sins separate us from God. S, sins cannot be paid for by good deeds. P, paying the price for our sins, Jesus died on the cross. E, everyone that puts their trust in Him will have eternal life. L, life life eternal is an everlasting relationship with God. That's the gospel message. Now you all got it written down. You can share it, right? Pretty simple. Now we gave the kids this acronym and a training on that and a practice on witnessing. And then we, we, we went out into the streets in Washington and walked around knocking on doors, asking for canned goods, and then giving the gospel message to anybody that would listen. And it was amazing, giving the simple gospel message. And it is a simple message. It is the most powerful message and tool that God uses for transforming lives. It's the good news that though God created us to be with Him and that our sins have separated us from Him, and we can't do anything to add to that, but Jesus paid that price for our sin, offers eternal life to anyone that would believe, and everyone that believes will have life eternal with Him. Now, if I add anything to that, or take away anything from that, is it still the Gospel? No, it is not. And it's imperative that as Christians that we give people the full Gospel message within this. And if we take away from the Gospel, or we change the Gospel in any way, then we give a false gospel or a false message. And those that would believe in the false message, what we're really doing is destining them to an eternal hell. Because we're not giving them the truth. Colossians, this book that we're going to read, is a powerhouse full of truth. It was written by Paul for the purpose of declaring the personal work and the preeminent work of Jesus Christ. It was to get people to understand what the truth is because there was a challenge that was going on in this time in the area of Colossae. Now, Paul was not the founder of Colossae, of of Colossians, the church that is there. It was most likely a guy by the name of Epaphras. He was a co-laborer with Paul and it was around 53 to 55 AD. And Paul would write this letter about seven to ten years later. And he was writing and it would be hand-delivered to them. Now, the believers in Colossae were in the area of the, the churches in Asia. Last October, we went to uh, Turkey and we visited the seven churches of Asia that were in there. Seven churches also known as the seven churches of Revelation. That's within this. But the problem is that there were false teachers that were going around and bringing heretical doctrine and even challenging who Jesus was. Now, question. If you remove Jesus out of the center of the gospel, do you have a gospel? Do you have any hope of eternal life? So if you alter who Jesus is in any way, shape, or form, you have a different Jesus. Is that dangerous? Absolutely it is. And so Colossians is one of the three prison epistles that Paul would write from Rome. And he's addressing some of these issues that were going on within that area. To give you an idea of what was happen- or where it's at. Here's a little map, and it's, I know it's a little hard to see. But Colossae is right there. Laodicea is, is right there. And so we have the seven churches of Revelation. Ephesus, Smyrna. you got Pergamum up here. 
Thyatira, Philadelphia, Hierapolis, Colossae, Laodicea. We went to all of those churches. We did a drive-by. Uh, in fact, we didn't even go to Colossae. That's right, because there was a tell, and it's just there's nothing there. There really isn't there. We went to Laodicea, and that was really cool. We went to Ephesus, it was really cool. And but to see this, the one thing that's impressed upon me when we did this this trip is when we went to go visit the seven churches of the revelation of who they were there, guess what's not there? The churches. They're not there. Most of the buildings are all destroyed. The city of Ephesus is there, but there's nothing there. Why? Because some of the the heresy and the things that were going on, it's a challenge to that. I would encourage you men to join us on Wednesday morning as we just started this morning in the book of Revelation. And and we'll get to those seven churches. But as Paul is writing this letter to the church of Colossae, he really wanted to hold the preeminence and supremacy of Jesus. Jesus has to be first and foremost in our life. And we have to go to him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And when when you add or subtract or create another Jesus... People were led astray. In fact, Paul would write to the church of Galatia in Galatians 1, 6 through 7. He says this, I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We think we have heresies now. They, they were dealing with it then where people were coming in. And they were teaching another, another Jesus. We have the benefit of God's written, holy and inspired word. And there's still people that are being disturbed and led away by false truth. How do you know the truth? Go to the word of God. And if somebody is teaching you something that sounds a little wonky, go to the word of God and say, look, at, this is what my Bible says. How do, you, how do you justify what you're saying with the word of God? And even as we talk today, we need to know the Word of God so that when something comes up weird, that we understand it. We need to trust the Gospel because it produces a growing faith. And anytime you get lost, anytime you wander and you start feeling like you're disconnected, come back to the Gospel message. Recenter yourself on that. So we're going to get into Paul's letter, his greeting in verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, that's who's writing it, to the saints of the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So the first thing he does is his introduction. Now, Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. And within this, he, he followed Paul and Paul was discipling him and training him. He would eventually send Timothy to Ephesus and and to help the Ephesian elders that are there. It's interesting that Paul, in his introduction, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, which Paul was very clear in saying, I am not self-appointed. God's called me to this. In fact, if you read Acts 9, he went kind of kicking and screaming into it. And God had to knock him off his high horse and and humble him. But he was appointed by God. And he addresses in a normal Pauline style, he says, to the saints and brethren who are in Colossae, that's who he's writing to, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And those two are, are 
two statements that Paul often uses together. He says to the saints. Now, these are not people that did miracles that got a seat in some kind of hierarchical church. Saints are holy ones. Do you know that you all, if you're a Christ follower, you're a saint? The word is hagios. It means those that are set apart for a holy purpose. You're all saints. Not by your own doing, because I know some of you, you're not saints. But the reality is, it's what Christ has done for you. What Christ has done in you. You are people in Christ and you're holy because you are in Christ. Not in your own works, but because you're in Christ within that. And so as Paul would say, grace and peace from who? God our Father. So he imposes this, this greeting of grace and peace. In Ephesians 2.8 he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's a, it's a gift. It's God's great grace. Do you realize that you're saved because God's great grace? Because I can tell you, in every one of us, there isn't anything redeemable. God looks at us and He says, you are sinner. But by my grace, I'm going to save you and make you a saint. And the next time that Satan wants to remind you what a dirty, rotten sinner you are, remind him of what Jesus did on the cross to make you a saint. That you're a child of God. And you are saved by grace, this grace gift that is given. Because you've put your faith in Jesus that's the gospel. That's part of the gospel. And this peace, it's, it's a well-being peace. In Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the, the barrier wall dividing. So here's the deal. God affords his grace upon you, and he gives you his peace, but your peace is actually found in Christ. It's being put in Christ. So no one that is apart from Christ has peace with God. The only way you can ever have peace with God is to be in Christ. And the only way that you're in Christ is by faith. And you receive this grace gift of being imparted in Christ. Now Paul goes on in his, in his letter, in verses 3 through 8, and he, and he blesses them and he, he's thankful for the fruit of the gospel that is there. And he's praying that they will recognize the fruit of the gospel. And again, keep in mind, the church of Colossae was in danger of wandering away from the centrality of Christ and the gospel. So in, they were in danger of becoming lost, believing a false gospel. So he recenters them and reminds them of the great work. Notice he says, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your what faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints... Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all of the world, also is constantly bearing fruit. What is bearing fruit? The gospel, increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved uh, fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, we could spend a whole sermon just on those passages. But you take a look at it, and the first thing he does is he's praying, and, and he says, I'm recognizing the work of the gospel. Question. 
If the gospel is transformative, and it is, should the work of the transformative gospel be evident in somebody's life? Absolutely. Because it's the power of God that transforms a life. And Paul is saying, I am praising God of your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. If someone says that they're a Christian and they believe in Christ, but their life is not transformed by that faith, are they really saved? No. No. Because it is not something they do. It is something that God does through the gospel message and through the power of the gospel transforming an individual's life. And Paul and Timothy and the others... They're giving the inclusive we that he uses there. We, inclusive, Paul, Timothy, and the others. Always giving thank and praying for those in Colossae and praying. And Paul was a man of prayer. I have a friend that prays for me regularly. She lets me know how she's praying for me, and I am blessed by it. There are people that are gifted in prayer. There are those that will come down here. Uh, I wish Fred was here. I think it's like 6 o'clock. On Monday mornings, they're praying. There are people that pray during the services. I have a group of guys that started praying for the Christian school every Wednesday morning at 7.30. Prayer is essential. It's what connects our hearts with one another and connects us with God. And there's all kinds of prayer. There's, but the prayers of supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving are essential as we pray for one another. Because we're uniting our heart with God and are uniting our hearts with one another. And Paul hadn't really met the believers in Colossae. He knew about them, but he was praying for them. And imagine this. Paul is stuck in a prison, chained to a Roman guard. He can't go. But can he affect change in Colossae? Through prayer. Because prayer doesn't know the distance. It connects us with God. And so Paul is praying for these believers. And what is he praying for them? For their testimony. That the gospel will have an impact on their life and transform their life. And that the gospel, get this, is not a one and done action. The transformation of the gospel is an ongoing effect in an individual's life. Just when you hear the gospel and you're saved, yes, that's fine. You've been justified. But the, the transformative work of the gospel... It also has a sanctifying force, setting you apart, growing in the gospel. Because the more I understand that God created me to be with Him, the more I understand that my sin separates me from God, the more I understand that I cannot pay for my sins with my good deeds, the more I understand that Jesus paid the price for my sin, and the more I understand how I need to trust in Him, the greater my hope of living with Him eternally. And you think about that. And we can pray that gospel message over people even though we're not with them. We can pray that gospel message to be imparted by the power of the Holy Spirit to that individual. And, and the other thing that he praises them for, and it's interesting because the work of the gospel is outlined in Paul's message here, the three elements. And it is the faith, love, and hope elements. The faith that we put in, in God, the love that God has for us, and the hope that is given to us for that. Now, is faith good if it's not anchored in something? No. 
Have you ever talked to somebody and say, well, you know, if you just have some faith. Okay. I can have faith. In what? I need a little more now. Faith in what? Well, just have faith. Faith in what? Because your faith is only as good as what it's anchored into. And within this. And any faith that is not anchored in Jesus is not a substantial faith. It's not an anchored faith. I can have faith in doctors, but are doctors going to make mistakes? Absolutely. You could have your faith. You could have faith in a pastor, but is your pastor going to make mistakes? Shake your head, yes. Because we're all fallible. But faith in the infallible, faith in the immortal, faith in the omniscient and the all-powerful is an anchor of faith. And that faith. It's, it's interesting because one of the elements of faith is, is solid faith. And Paul says, I, I praise God and I'm praying for your faith to grow. But faith is, is anchored first and foremost in a past event. It, your, your faith is anchored in something that has happened that you can trust in. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. God is the eternal God that came to earth in the form of Jesus and came to give us that life. And without faith, there is no life. Romans 10, 9 says, so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's a past event. That's the anchor of my faith. That Jesus died on the cross three days later after being buried, rose again. And is the firstborn of the resurrection. And there is so much, and we're going to unpack in a minute, about that, that gives me something to stand on. And I can tell you this, in the world we live in today, there's not much we can stand on. We need a faith that has an anchor. And a faith that has an anchor also is a faith that's demonstrated through love. Paul would write to the church of Thessalonica, he says this in Thessalonians 1.3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Faith, hope, and love, all tied together like a threefold cord, like a rope. This trilogy, faith, hope, and love, keeps us centered within that. If faith is anchored in the past and gives us strength for the present, then what part does hope play? As Paul prays for them, that you would have this hope. It's a hope that anticipates the future. And it looks forward to the future, not as a wishful thinking, but a guaranteed event. Faith trusts in a past event that carries you through the present. Hope is anchored in the future event that will not change. Will not change. And the gospel gives us that eternal hope. Paul would write to the church in Romans 5, 1-5, he says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, past event, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith 
past event, into this grace in which we presently stand, or we stand now, and then we exult in hope. What's the hope? Looking forward to the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in tribulation, knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance about proven character, proven character, hope. And a hope does not disappoint. Why? Because it's a future event. Because the God of love, or the love of God, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so the Holy Spirit becomes the constant. The power of the Holy Spirit brings you to the awareness of your sin. The power of the Holy Spirit sanctifies you and works out the gospel message through your daily life. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives you a hope for the future. And Paul is praying this over the church of Colossae. Praying for them. That they would stay centered on the gospel message. What message? It was the one that was delivered by Epaphras, verses 6 through 8. Notice he says, which came to you just as in all the world also. So it's a constant message and it's bearing fruit and increasing. It was intended to spread. Do you ever pray for revival? You should. You should pray for revival. And what's the message of revival? Gospel message. The gospel message is the message of revival. You think about this. There were 11 people, 12 counting Paul, that turned the world upside down. And they weren't the smartest bulbs in the bunch. They were not the most eloquent of speakers. They didn't go to cemetery, seminary, whatever Bible thing you do. They had the gospel message and they'd been with Jesus. Thousands of people were coming to faith. Churches were being planted all over the place. You know what their mission strategy was? Go share the gospel. Just go share the gospel. And embed that gospel message with faith, hope, and love. Bring that message out. It's the commission that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8 it says this, But you will receive power when, notice not if, but when, the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and how far? The remotest parts of the earth. I often wonder what it would be like if the church really took this message to heart. How many people would still need to hear the gospel if every believer took this message to heart? We would be a machine, an evangelist machine, and, and be witnessing everywhere we go. And everybody that we would come in contact with, give them the gospel message. That is your job as well as it is mine. It's the advancement of the gospel. And so Paul was talking about this gospel message going around the whole world, which literally for him at that time was the whole Roman Empire. There were people even in Caesar's house getting saved. Why? Because Paul was in jail in Rome sharing the gospel message. He didn't even let his chains stop him. And the gospel is, is, as we read, is both proclaimed and demonstrated. Do you know that the gospel is spoken and demonstrated through actions? In fact, I would say that the gospel message is not a complete gospel message unless it's demonstrated with action. Unless actions are accompanied with it. If you want to share the love of God, be the hands of Jesus. Be the one that, that bears that fruit in activity, 
And it's interesting, Paul says that that activity is going and growing. It, the, the spiritual growth is the byproduct of the Word of God coming out and people understanding grace and truth. Because the gospel reveals the grace gift of God. If you were to walk up to somebody and you had, you had $100,000 in cash, you walk up to them and you say, would you like this? And they said, no, nah, no thanks. You, what would you think about that person? Are you out of your mind? I'm offering you this, this great gift. If you walk up to somebody and you say, I'd like to tell you how you could have eternal life and not spend the rest of your life suffering. In eternity, suffering. Would you like to know what it's like to have love unconditional? A hope inconceivable. You know, I've, I've talked with a number of people, two particularly this last week, that are on death's door. Literally, on death's door. And both of them, fully assured, guaranteed, that the minute that they close their eyes, they're going to be in the presence of God. Based on the anchor of faith and the present hope that guides them into that place. Talked with another guy two weeks ago. Went through his surgery. How did it go? And he says, I woke up. <laughs> I was thinking, you're sick. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you woke up? He says, I woke up and I saw the ceiling and I went, ah, oh, here again. Because he has that guarantee. Epaphras was a, a fellow worker with Paul and he loved Paul, but he also loved the gospel. And he was delivering the gospel of grace to Colossae. And he was bringing it. Romans ten fifteen says, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The gospel message. Some of you know James and Michelle Nett. We've been praying for them. They should be coming home from Romania uh, sometime this week. But we sent them over to go visit our missionaries that are over there. they got pretty feet. Marcel has got pretty feet. Zolt has pretty feet. These are people that are going out. Trianne, working with the kids. They've had three camps, ranging anywhere between 50 to 80 kids at each one of the camps in Romania, sharing the gospel. For a week, being able to do that. How pretty are your feet? Are they going and sharing the gospel? You know, you think about, how can I share the gospel? I'm here. I don't know that I could do much. You can do an awful lot. I think it's next Thursday. This Thursday? Dan, is it this Thursday or next Thursday? Tomorrow? Next Thursday. Next Thursday you can share the gospel. If any of you have those little amber bottles that are about that big, bring them. Because you can share the gospel with that. And you're like, how can I do that? Well, because next Thursday you're going to pack fishing kits. And the fishing kits are going to go into the Operation Christmas Child boxes. And those Operation Christmas Child boxes are going to be packed with the gospel message that are going to travel the world. And that little act is missional. Being able to share the gospel message. Paul sees the value of the gospel in the church of Colossae and he sees the dangerous impact of those that are trying to take it away. And Paul prays and he prays and he prays. In this next section, Paul talks about 
what is he praying? He's praying for the increase of the gospel. Do you pray for the increase of the gospel? Look at verses 9 to 14. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, that word so that in Greek, it's a henna clause, it means purpose. You've got to pay attention now to the, what the purpose is. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness, joy, and patience, joyous, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. So Paul prays. What does he pray? He's praying that the power of the gospel would increase. Question. If the power of the gospel and the gospel itself is increasing, what is it doing to darkness? It's making darkness flee. As the gospel message increases and the power of the gospel increases in people's lives, darkness flees. Light and darkness cannot exist in the same place. You want to change the world? Share the gospel. You want to see the world transformed? Pray that the gospel would increase within that. One of the threats that was happening to the church at this time was the heretical teaching that Jesus was not enough. You've got to do Jesus plus, and they were adding to the gospel. And so Paul again is praying what that the knowledge of his will, first of all, he prays that the knowledge of his will would be known. Can you know the will of God? Shake your head, yes. Absolutely. I have people, I don't know what God's will is for me. Give me about five minutes, I'll tell you what it is, and I'll show you a couple of verses. It's God's will that you hold this vessel sanctified and pure for Him. It is God's will that you share the gospel. It is God's will that you love Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's God's will that you love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know the will of God? That's the will of God. Application is going to be different in every circumstance. But knowing His will, yes, you can know. How do I know the will of God? I can tell you this through a personal and practical relationship with Him. You want to know the will of God? Know Him. He'll tell you. He'll tell you how to do it. And so Paul prays that they will be filled up with the knowledge of God's will as their relationship grows. The deeper your relationship with God grows, the more you're going to know His will. So many times people go, they go, well, I don't know what God's will is. Like, okay, have you spent time any praying at all? No, I haven't prayed in a long time. Are you spending time reading God's Word? No, I don't know. Are you hanging out with other Christians that can encourage you, strengthen you, and challenge you? No, 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 no. Okay, go home. Unplug all of your lamps. And expect the light to come on. Because that's about it. what you're doing. You've got to get into this place where you are connected to God... And the power of God is connected to you through the power of the Holy Spirit to know His will within this. And so within this, to be filled up. One of the teachings that was going on with the cultic 
events at that time was God's not knowable. They were teaching, you can't know God. God is too high, too mighty. That's a lie. God has made himself known in so many ways. God made himself known through his son Jesus so that we can know God. God makes himself known through the Holy Spirit so that we can know him. Remember what G stands for. God wants to be in relationship with us. And so within this, Paul is praying that, the will, that they will grow in the knowledge of the will of God and spiritual wisdom. I know a lot of really dumb, smart people. And I suppose you know a few too. It's not the kind of worldly wisdom we're talking about. It's spiritual wisdom. It's wisdom from above. Secular man and, and human philosophy, and even in the culture, in the Greek philosophy, they couldn't comprehend a God in their culture, so they thought that that God was unknowable. You think about Paul even on Mars Hill. They had all these statues for all of these different gods, and they, but then they had that one platform, and they're like, well, what's this one about? Well, that's for the unknown God. Why do you have that one? Well, we don't want to miss anybody. and We just don't know. Isn't it a blessing to know that, that there is a God that we can know, and He's made Himself known to us. The very creation declares His glory. He makes Himself known to us. And, and the word know or knowledge that is in there is gnosis. It's not oida. Oida is, is intellectual knowledge. Paul uses the word gnosis, which means to know by experience. And to know by experience is the relational knowledge that's there. It's not knowing God is not an intellectual exercise. It's an experience that's afforded to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. How do I know that I know God? Okay, comes back to how do I know the gospel is transforming? Through spiritual living. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, in God, with God in your heart. It's the experience. How do I know? When you read the Bible and it talks to you. When you worship and you experience the power and the presence of God through the song and the, and the words of the song. When you pray and a peace of God passes all understanding, puts a guard around your heart and your mind. Why does Paul pray that their knowledge would grow? so that the believers would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the Lord. I told you to pay attention to the Hineclause. There were six things that Paul had in that prayer. Six goals. One, verse 10. He prays that as your knowledge would grow, you would please the Lord in every way. Think about this. The more you're in relationship with God, aren't your actions going to be more pleasing to the Lord? The, the tighter your relationship with God... What you do will make God smile. And so he prays that your walk or the way you conduct yourself would be pleasing to the Lord. Second, in verse in 10b, to bear fruit for every good work is to be able to produce that fruit that, that reflects that being changed. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, note, we are being... That's a present active 
participle, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord and the Spirit. As you grow in wisdom and knowledge, you are being transformed into the image of Jesus. So, the world needs to see Jesus. How do they see Jesus? Through the believer. You need to become Jesus with skin on. Through your actions, through your language, through your, your, your talk. How does that happen? You've got to grow in the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ. And let that transform you. But if you're not spending time with Jesus, you will not be transformed to be like Him. In fact, I would venture to say whatever the majority of the time you spend doing, that's what you become. Whatever you're doing. If you're on Facebook all the time, well, you're becoming like all the people on Facebook. If you're hanging around secular people, then you become like the secular people. And, and so whatever being the major influence in your life, that's challenging your, your spirituality. And Paul prays third to increase in the knowledge that you, as your knowledge goes, that you'll increase in real knowledge of God. The real knowledge being transformed, that you'll know him and be known by him. Fourth, to be strengthened with all power. And again, I talk with people all the time, Christians alike, and, and, and they'll tell me, they say, Carrie, I just feel powerless. I can't do this. Hogwash. You can. But you choose not to. You say, well, what do you mean? I can't. Oh, yes, you can. But you choose not to. Because you have to do the hard work of gaining the knowledge and understanding and submitting yourself to the Spirit of God to be strengthened with all power. You've got to be connected into Him. Remember the illustration of the lamp and the plug. For a lot of people, the light doesn't work because they're just not plugged in. Well, I want the light to work. Well, plug the lamp in. I don't want to plug the lamp in. Well, the light's not going to work. But I'm scared. Plug the lamp in. <laughs> to be strengthened with all power means that you have to come know, you have to come to know more and more of God, who in turn strengthens you more and more with his power, because it's the abiding power of Christ in you. Fifth, to joyfully attain perseverance and patience. Paul prays that the church would be able to persevere and have patience. Why? Because trials will knock your feet out from under you. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Okay, well, wait a minute. In this world you will have tribulation, but I should be of good cheer. Okay? Why? Because I've overcome the world. Okay? But if I'm in Christ, that makes me what? An overcomer. Because he's overcome the world. Hebrews 10, 39 says this. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. Because Christ has already won. Sixth. 
to give thanks, Paul prays that they would give thanks to God who is qualified to receive eternal life, to, to give eternal life to us. In all else, regardless of anything else, why should we give thanks? Because I have eternal life. And that will never, ever, ever be taken away. Say, well, Carrie, can I rejoice in the fact that I'm dying? Yes, you can. Because you still get a miracle. Can I rejoice if I lost my job? Yes, you can. Because God promises to provide for you and never leave you nor forsake you. God doesn't allow His children to go hungry. God will take care of you. He's a Father. And He declares that qualified believers or those that believe in Him will have eternal life. And within this, Paul ends these, this section in 13 and 14, declaring the believers rescued. Look at 13 and 14. He says, For the, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That is a present reality right now. Look at that. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, we live in a dark world, yes? But we are not under the authority of darkness. Amen? We should live as those that are victorious. We don't live under the domain or control of darkness. It has no touch on us. So we should never walk around as, as mopey puppies within that. But understand that God has already transformed us into the kingdom of His light. It's a reality now, not yet experienced in its fullness. Because we're not in heaven yet. And we're outside of the domain of Satan. Do you realize that Satan cannot touch you unless he goes to God first? But for those that are not under the domain of God's kingdom, Satan has a heyday with them. But he can't touch you. He's got to go to God first. We know that from Job. And so we are transformed into the authority of the Son, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes. It's a prayer. To open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light, from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Christian, you need to start living. We need to start living. The church needs to start living as those that are victorious now, because we are. And those that are in the kingdom of God now, and not be afraid of what Satan throws at us. You know, he, he, he's a roaring lion, but for the believer, he's a roaring lion with no teeth. He can growl all he wants, but he can't do anything. We need to live in that present reality. And, and you know, I'm encouraged. There is a movie out, and I haven't had a chance to see it, but I've seen the clips and the reviews. There's a movie out called Essential Church. I would encourage you to go see that movie. And it's about, it's about a church in California and those in Canada, and I was hearing more about it even this morning, about those pastors that said during, during the whole COVID shutdown and all these things, these are pastors that were getting arrested for keeping their church open. You know, I look at what happened with John MacArthur's church down south. And they threw, California threw everything at them. LA, they, they tried everything. And guess what? They lost. They lost. MacArthur won. God's word prevailed. We live in this present kingdom. Paul goes on in verses 15 to 17 
and, and again declares Jesus as he defends or his apologetic of who Jesus is. He gives the defense about who Jesus is. So, if the gospel is centered on Jesus, we've got to have the right Jesus, right? Who is the right Jesus? 15 to 17. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So, when we take a look at who is Jesus, the first and foremost thing is Jesus is the image of God. He is the incarnate God. He is the image of the invisible God, and there's seven characteristics in verses 15 to 20 that tell us who Jesus is. But starting out with this, he tells us, first of all, he's the image of God, firstborn of creation, creator of all things, head of the church, firstborn of the dead, fullness of God, and reconciled to God. Image of God. Question. Did Jesus create the heavens and the earth? Absolutely he did. Notice in, verse, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image, and in the image God created a male and female. He created them. And in the beginning, God said, let us create man in our own image. Hebrews 1.3 says this, And he is the radiance and the glory and the exact representation of his nature, opposed all things by the word of his power. And when he had made perfection of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the image of God. He is the second person of the Godhead, incarnate, completed the work, and is seated at the right hand throne of God. And within this, Jesus enables the Father and the Spirit to connect with us as he makes intercession for us, as he is the one to be worshipped. He is the only image that has ever been endorsed by God to be worshipped. Think about that. In the Old Testament, in Jewish culture, could they ever create an image and worship it? No, by God's demand. Yet God declares the worship of Jesus, His Son, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord. God doesn't share His glory with anyone. Therefore, He is God because God affords to Him worship. He's the firstborn of creation. Now, there was a false teaching that was going around by a guy named Arius. Arius was going around saying that Jesus was, was actually um, born into humanity and he was a created being. And that false teaching actually went around and lasted until 325 A.D. The te- part of the teaching um, was that Jesus was born as a man and that the Holy Spirit came upon him and he became divine at his baptism and that God dwelled within him until the crucifixion and then God left him as a man. Is that true? No. But it was a false teaching that was going on. Why? Because they can't explain Jesus. They can't explain the incarnate. The word firstborn there does not mean that which is physically born, but the preeminence or the one that's privileged in order. The birthright. Whenever you see firstborn in Old Testament and in Jewish culture, it's always the one that has the birthright that is there. So Jesus is the 
the firstborn or the one that has priority over all creation. And, as we'll see in verse 18, he's the firstborn of the death in order to give us life. Notice in verse 16 it says, And in him and through him and for him all things were created, heaven and earth. Jesus is the agent of creation within all of these things. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Okay. So, if Jesus is sovereign over all, and He's over all of the kingdoms, and He's my Lord, then do I have to really worry about who's president, who's king, who's governor, or who's mayor? No. Because He's sovereign over all things. And I can trust in Him. Now, does that mean I should be careless? No. It just means don't get, your, get all wrapped up around the axle about different things that are going on. God is sovereign. All realms, everything belongs to Him. Ephesians 6, 10-12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength and power of His might. Put on the full armor of God. All our VBS workers know this. So that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers and powers and against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces and wickedness in the heavenly places. But we think about this. If you remove Jesus from his position of sovereignty, who is the who is the one that the only one that could ever overcome evil? No one. Jesus overcame evil. He overcame death. When he conquered death in the grave, death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him within this. Jesus not only created all things, but he sustains all things in creation and sovereign to him. And in this, he goes on and he says, and this same Jesus is the reconciler to man. Notice in verses 18 to 20. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have a place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him. I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Jesus has the preeminent position in the leadership of the church. So who's in charge, Jesus or the Pope? Jesus. Who's in charge, Jesus or the pastor? Say Jesus, please. Jesus is the head of the church, big C, ecclesia, those that are called out of the world. Jesus is in charge. He is the head of the body of Christ, the church united. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. We've got to understand that. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing body that is there, put together with Jesus as the head, held together. In fact, Ephesians 4, 15, 16 says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him, who is the head, even Christ, from all the whom body is fitted and held together by every joint supplying according to the properly working of each other, individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, as an organism, each part is to function in, its, in the way that it's been designed. Some of you might be an arm. Some of you might be a hand. Some of you might be a big toe. Some of you might be, I don't know, a pancreas or something. Some parts are seen. Some parts are not seen. 
But the, the fact of the matter is, every part matters. And every part should work together under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But so many times, we, we don't want to do our thing when the big toe says, I don't want to work anymore. Then people fall flat on their face because they can't keep their balance. When the eyes say, I don't want to work anymore. Well, then we start walking into things because we can't see. Jesus directs every part of the body according to this. For what? For the growth of the body. For the benefit of the body. When you say, I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to be part of the body anymore. I trust in Christ. I believe in Jesus. But I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be part of the body anymore. What are you doing? You're dismembering the body. You have a place. You're robbing the body of your presence. And you definitely are not submitting under the headship of the Lord Jesus. Because by design, Jesus says, you will be part of the body. You are part of the body. Now get connected. And everyone has that part. Paul makes a statement that is interesting. He says, firstborn of the dead. What does he mean? Well, again, it's preeminence. He is the first one or the first fruits of the resurrection. How do I know I have the hope of eternal life? Because Jesus rose. And if I find my life in Christ because He's risen, I am also going to rise within this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Note, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so also, note, in Christ all will be made alive. Not might be, will be. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So, if you're in Christ, you're going to rise again. Now, there's two ways to do it. Uh, you can die and rise again. Or you could rise again in the rapture of the church. In the order. Those that fell asleep and are dead and that are dead will arise. And then those that remain alive at the sound of the trumpet, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, will rise. And we will rise again. To my friends that are on death's door, how, do I, how can I be sure that they're going to get their miracle? Because God's Word says so. How can I be sure... Because Jesus showed us that it will happen. And because He lives, I will live. Because He lives and rose from the dead, they will live. So should I fear death? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Further on, He goes on, And it pleased God to give, the, give all fullness in Christ. The fullness is this completeness. It's the idea of being able to see all of God. In Christ, Ezekiel 10.4 says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of His glory. Oh, that I wish we could fall back to those days. Just for a glimpse. What would it be like to be able to look at the temple or the tabernacle and see the Shekinah glory of God? Yet Israel did and they didn't believe. Oh, what it would be like to see the ascension of Jesus. But how many saw it that didn't believe? Because it really is by faith. But we see the fullness of God. 
Oh, do I long for the day when I get to heaven and I see Jesus and I see the throne of God in all its glory and heaven in its magnificence. Indescribable. Where the only action that I'll have is to be able to fall down on the ground because I'll be so blown away by everything that's there. And at that moment in time, everything that I put my faith and trust in will be affirmed because I'll see the throne of God. I'll see my Savior. And within this, within this we'll be able to see this. Paul also says in verse 20 that Jesus is the agent of reconciliation, the one that brings us back together. He's the one that brings us to Him. Lastly, in verses 21 to 23, he says this, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He also now reconciles you in the fleshly body through the death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away, from the hope of the gospel that you have inherited, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, was made a minister. What does he say? You were formerly alienated from God. Our sins separated us from God. And within this, sins can't be paid for by good deeds. So Paul says, now we are reconciled through the death of Jesus. Verse 22 your past condition of sin, but you're no longer there because we've been reconciled with a purpose. For what? Hope. Your present condition, sinful body, but you are now holy. You're now blameless and now above reproach. Notice how he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, that's a first class condition. It means if indeed you continue in faith and you will and you should don't allow these threats of the false gospel to move you. Stay focused. Don't let doubt come in. If you continue and not moved away from the hope of the gospel you've heard, which is proclaimed in all creation, don't lose hope. How do you not lose hope in a hopeless world? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Center yourself in the gospel. And pray. Looking for that assurance and that hope to be fulfilled in the end days. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've given to us these words of Paul. Powerful words in this passage. God, I know that there are some here that perhaps are questioning or challenged by the conditions they're in, situations, or even the world's condition. Struggling. They've heard so much of the world and not enough of the gospel. It's difficult and they're lost and they're looking for hope. The hope is in Jesus. And God, when we struggle and when we strive and, and, and we just don't know which way to go, may we run to You, Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. May we lean on You for everything and in all things trust in You until that day You call us home. We praise You and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll close with a song. Let my rest be asked to you.
for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.